0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Oksana Stowe, for the introduction to our guest today, Susan Lin. Susan is a partner at Felix Capital. Felix Capital is one of the premier consumer investors based in the UK. I mean, some of their investments include Goop, Oatly, Peloton, Celerex. We discuss what consumer-driven means, how it's spilled over to B2B, The difference when scaling a European company versus one that's based in the U.S., what is a real competitive advantage for a company today? Why Felix recently raised $600 and much, much more. I love this conversation. Without further ado, here's Susan. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Or this evening, I guess, your time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, 4.34 here in London. Um, actually, uh, it's a bit of a gray day, but we've had a string of really nice weather, so I can't complain. It's it's about as nice as it gets here in the British summer.
0: That's good. And still, and I would consider 4.30 still day, still part of the day.
1: Yeah, yeah, so definitely part of the day. It actually, well, I was going to say in, in winter, it gets dark really early, but in summer, it actually goes light until 10 p.m. So it's really nice.
0: So, what was your initial attraction? Like, how did you get started in entrepreneurship and venture capital from the very beginning?
1: Yeah, so it's it's funny actually. I was I was recently um, thinking I, I had a, a little boy about two and a bit years ago, and I was reflecting a little bit more about this. And it's actually a funny story because um, I have to actually credit my parents quite a lot. So my parents were well, they were sort of um, Chinese immigrants to Australia. And originally were researchers, but then they kind of caught the startup bug in the original '90s uh, internet era. So they were using computers for their own research, and then they got really interested about the you know the potential of the internet, and then um, they became sort of serial entrepreneurs. So so they actually started one company together, uh, which was pretty. <laughs> I don't know that I would recommend that. It was a pretty bold move. But as a result, I was you know I was sort of surrounded, like as a kid growing up, especially when I was, like I think, a, a teenager, I met their like early co-founders, their first initial investors. I just thought it was a really interesting journey that they've been on. I sort of saw also the dot-com boom and bust, actually. And then they, um, for a period, Lam, ran their company in Hong Kong and then Shenzhen, which is this tech city. Now it's this huge metropolis in China. But I sort of also got to witness a bit firsthand just like that increase incredible transformation um, that took place over, you know, five, 10 years in China, where sort of tech just just sort of disrupted and transformed everything. And I think that that sort of got me initially kind of interested in it. And then I took a very roundabout route. I went to I went to the US for school for college. I then consulted uh, did consulting at a company called Bain, Bain company in San Francisco, uh, worked with actually a lot of tech companies there, also a couple stints at at different startups, two different startups in the US as an operator, both on the product management side and on the biz dev side. And then when I came To London about five six years ago, I got recruited to be an investor. Previously, at a different fund by a former colleague of mine, and then I discovered sort of really enjoyed investing, and so yeah, now I'm here.
0: What are some of the differences, and what led you down when you got recruited to get into investing? You know, what was the opportunity? Why did you decide to? maybe dip your toes in the other side of the table so to speak and what's been like the biggest learning or change from from operating
1: so I was always, I guess I had always been sort of interested in going into investing. I just had to sort of assumed that that was something people did much later in life. I sort of saw, you know, the VC community is, is, is a pretty small, as you know really well. It's a pretty small ecosystem, which I think if you are an outsider, it's kind of hard to get in. And I always assumed like I would have to like really earn my stripes and you know be either a successful founder or be like a long term you know senior operator who spent like you know 20 years building a company and then sort of pivot into investing. But then. I got recruited by a former colleague to join um, a fund based in London called HG Capital, which mostly does growth equity and private equity. And it was just sort of work in in their um, in their tech um, investing um, team and was sort of quite, quite curious to check it out. I mean, it was a, it was a large, much larger organization of a big fund and so, you know, operating in a different way. But uh, I thought it would be, it's always one of those things where I wanted to really prove the hypothesis to see if I enjoyed it. And so as the opportunity arose, it just felt like I couldn't say no. And then when I was there, you know, really, really, enjoyed the work you know and and, um, and worked with got to work with some really interesting companies but found that overall the stage and the and the size of the fund was just not not really a fit for me uh, it was just much later stage more mature companies which were sort of less open to change i would say much less sort of disruptive and then you know also the way the company itself operated was just a very sort of structured behemoth
0: what made you excited about working with Younger companies, earlier stage companies, and what I guess ultimately led you to Felix? I will sort of
1: put my hand up and say I'm a bit of a failed founder. Um, so I, I tried to start two startups when I was living in SF and none of them really got off the ground properly and I, I learned a lot through the journey. But I you know I discovered that, you know, I, I think it's good to learn the what you're capable of, you're not capable of. And I, I found it a pretty lonely journey actually. I think for me it was sort of getting back into I you know, I love the excitement and, I, and when I joined the two startups, they were also at series A stage. So I love the excitement of being in an early stage company when you're figuring things out, when you're testing the product, when you're you know figuring out your go to market channels, um, and when you know there's just you're in, in that Sort of building test and learn mode, but then I also I found that personally I sometimes if I'm doing something myself I, I find it difficult to persevere alone. And so when you're on the other side, you have multiple portfolio companies you're working with, and also you know your own team that you're collaborating with, and it's just a it's a very different dynamic. And I, so I feel like I get to I get the taste of that journey, but but not of <laughs> having to to do it by myself.
0: That's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. Why? In Felix, you decided to raise such a large fund, and what were what's maybe some of the opportunities that you're that you're seeing within as it relates to consumer.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, so just does maybe as a bit of background for some of the listeners, Felix, we're actually a pretty young fund firm ourselves. We we do think of ourselves as a startup or a scale up, and that was part of what really excited me about joining the team here. So, we're we just raised our, four, our fourth set of funds when we started in 2015. Our first fund it was yeah it was quite a bit small, it's 120 million or so. Now the latest fund is 600. We obviously have seen over the, the last few years there's just been sort of the, the fact that like we typically a lot of our investment is at the early stage side. Um, so we saw sort of two challenges. One is even at the early stage, you know, rounds were getting larger, you know, initial investment sizes were, were getting bigger. And so there was sort of an increase um, commensurate with that on, on the fund side that was required. And the other thing is that we just saw, you know, a lot of exciting companies in our own portfolio really break out, and we didn't quite have enough reserves to really follow on. And so, you know, we or maybe we could could follow in the next round, but we couldn't do the Series C round or Series D round. We really have um, a strong conviction to try to back, you know, our companies as, as long as we can and, and partner for the long term and so this time we we've been able to sort of raise a larger fund which you know in large part will be used to reinvest in our own portfolio company second part of your question in terms of like opportunities with, within you know we, we we started out being sort of very thematically focused particularly around the consumer lifestyle which actually doesn't mean we only invest in consumer we, we probably invest in 60 70 percent that are more consumer facing you know products or brands or platforms and then the you other know, 30, 40 percent is more um, B2B software tools that are either enabling sort of this e-commerce and consumer revolution or sort of consumerized workplace tools. But we still see that you know there's a huge opportunity there, you know, across both Europe and, and the US, and we're quite we look at things quite globally that hasn't been tapped into. So so super excited to to continue to double down in those areas.
0: What we've seen from cause of course, I mean Felix is very well known. Um, as being you know one of the few you know very consumer heavy funds, especially as you said on like the lifestyle you know investing in you know consumer brands and what have you and what I've kind of seen is when funds are raising that you know have been maybe known for investing in consumer brands larger and larger and larger amounts they actually maybe make a pivot or an evolution as we call it to other categories as you move forward since you know 600 that's a lot of money how much of an emphasis now are you still putting on consumer brands
1: the way we define brand is not really sort of the the narrow sense of like a, a... D to C brand where, you know, you're you're selling a, a, a new product to online to consumers, I, I guess, you know, when we think about brand, we think about it more broadly. It could be, you know, I mean, some of the, even the, the big sort of B2B companies, whether it's Stripe or Slack or Canva, like that is a brand as well. So I think we, we see brand more, more broadly. But I think, you know, on that, we still, you know, that that is a big, big these, part of our thesis, which is that, you know, really, I think a lot of companies or a lot of funds rather would, would sort of put a strong emphasis around tech mode or, or around sort of IP moat or even data moat, and I think for us, actually, we see the brand moat as being hugely strong. I mean, if you look at sort of some of the most valuable companies still today, you know, whether it's Apple, whether it's Tesla, like so much of that intangible on their balance sheet, that intangible value is tied up in their brand, and so we we see that as as hugely important. I think we'll you know we'll continue to invest across sort of different areas around the consumer product side or or platform side. You know, so from digital health to fitness, to um, we've we're looking at consumer um, financial wellness tools. Um, to sort of e-commerce marketplace platforms. Um, it will be pretty broad, but I think definitely always with a modern brand sort of element to it. And actually, we one of the investments that we worked on earlier this year, which we, we didn't do a big announcement on, but actually it's a great um, LA-based brand, which still is a D2C brand, actually. Um, it's a company called Owl Place. I don't know if you... You know yeah you, our
0: place of course yeah, of course they're great of course. Um,
1: so a really fantastic mission driven team you know really wanting to bring people together and cultures together through you know the kitchen and dining table and building just these beautiful accessible and also diverse um, kitchen products so you know I think a lot of people would probably have said you know that they are shifting focus away from those types of investments but I think when when executed really well we were still super excited about them
0: yeah it seems like the bar has just been raised, right for consumer brands, and I imagine too that you're thinking on the consumer brand side of things, maybe working in retail is a must factor. I know I think our place isn't in retail, but maybe that's you know part of the plan you know going forward um since you know e commerce it's obviously grown quite considerably the penetration during covid, but it's still very much the minority when it comes to sales, right in retail. so you also said something well, you said many things very interesting, but one of the things that I thought was quite fascinating that to dive deeper on is brand moat. I know that you said that you know other investors I mean I'm sure that that you're also looking at what is your maybe technology what's a technology moat or you know if it's a marketplace does it have network effects or if it's a SaaS business like what's the churn rate and kind of the cohorts that kind of come with that. But when you're evaluating company how do you assess if they have a true brand moat? Must be tricky or or maybe harder in some ways to measure if maybe a marketplace is working, right? And you're seeing like the demand getting pulled to the actual website or, you know, marketplace. How do you measure brand moat in your and maybe and maybe like some examples about how, how maybe this has shifted not only consumer but it could be even like a, you know, on the B2B side too.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's such a great question. I mean, I think it, it is it is really difficult to pit, to pin down because one of those things, and that I think maybe that's the reason why some investors will shy a bit away from this because I think it is it can be difficult to quantify. You know, particularly at the the earlier stage side, like it is a bit of a mix of we call it, you know, art and science, right? The brand magic is is it is a little bit like you you know it when you see it, but you, it's difficult to put it into words. One of the metrics we do use sort of internally, we, we call it sort of customer love, which is really looking at you know the trying to understand you know does it does this company and the founders really understand like the community that they're speaking to? Are they doing a great job of fostering that community? Are people engaging with the brand not just from a at a transactional level, but at a sort of deeper you know more or emotional type of level, and there, where there's sort of different types of metrics, we might look at that, you know, it's like around cohort um, performance and repeat and how much of your sales are, are organic or versus, ref, you know, and referral. I think we we are quite, you know, conscious of generally not over-relying on paid performance marketing channels, but looking at all these other things. I think it's it's always a little little bit, of, you know, it's it's always, a, it can be a difficult one to pin down, but then you sometimes, you know, in the early, I mean, sometimes for early stage companies, we, we look at all of the, the comments people leave on the Instagram or TikTok pages because based on the emojis, you know, when it's the heart emoji or the star emoji, like you can just, and they'll tag their friends. Like you can see that that's, there is that like brand mode and love. And maybe we'll just one example from our own portfolio, it's this company called um, Majuri. I don't know if you've, you've heard of them. It's a company that uh, came, uh, that was uh, in, in Toronto that actually one of my, my former colleagues actually found initially on, on Instagram and they are the modern jewelry brand um, and have, you know, just developed over time, you know, This sort of really known for bringing these like accessible, high quality, like very wearable pieces to millennial and women, but also you know some older generation, some younger generation.
0: How do you think as well? um, Because we've had a couple investors on the show that invested in Peloton. I would say regarding you know category creators, because I think that there's there's no doubt that when when it comes to connected fitness, that Peloton really was you know the winner there at least the first winner right i mean there's a lot, a lot of other companies that are obviously doing pretty well when you think about category kind of creators when you're looking to invest where i'd imagine tam it's really kind of hard to measure it or to really quite understand because if you took the market of you know connected fitness back then like i had on for example when eric paley was on and talking about fitbit where like the market for you know wearables when they came out was it was pretty pioneering when you're an investor how important is TAM? How do you think about market sizing in general? Since I'd imagine that this is kind of a tricky area, especially in the early stages, if you want to seek true innovation.
1: You know, we've seen it a lot also in the food space. So we we've invested quite a lot in well, both on the food delivery side, but also in, in you know, newer food formats. So we we've been invested in um in a company called All Plants here in the UK, which does vegan um, meal frozen meals that are delivered. We were um, also lucky to be investors in, in Oatly, um, you know, founded in Sweden. And it's yeah, for a lot of these things where there is a, a there is sort of an ongoing transformation and a shift of of consumer preferences and behavior. It's really hard to tell. So you you can you can look at I mean, taking Oatly example. When they started, there was no oat milk market at all. You know, it was probably like ten ten million or something like that. Um, so they really much like Peloton. I really created that and so you know you can look at adjacent forms of spending right which is like you know in that case like okay what is the overall dairy market side which is 99 percent regular cow's milk and then you know you also look at some of the growth of like other alternative milks where it's almonds
0: and so can you kind of like pick apart and kind of and kind of take away some of that market share from like the dairy market in this case yeah
1: exactly and the same with with peloton right you sort of look at okay what are people generally spending on on fitness health and fitness and, and how much do people care about this and you know how you know can they take more and more of that that share of for time, those are some ways to triangulate. But sometimes, you know, there, there. It's also, it is a little bit of, I, I think, especially when you're creating those new behaviors. You know, what, what you know, oatly and Peloton I still think, you know, have have done really well is they've just made, they have, like to your point on the next product, they've just made such a good product that like switching from the incumbent to what they're doing is not at all a chore. It's not a you know, it's a, it, it's a delightful experience, you know, and that's why, you know, Oatly was really successful in the early days because they they went through baristas who couldn't really do the same level of froth with other forms of alternative milk like soy or, or almond, and and oat milk actually enabled them to make the same product. And so people drank it and said, "Actually, this tastes great." So like, why, you know, if it's if it's the same cost and it tastes great and it's nutritionally good, you know, and it also helps, you know, save the planet, like why wouldn't I do that? And the same with, you know, Peloton, but I think sometimes you do see products which. Which are trying to innovate upon an incumbent, but like aren't quite good enough or don't quite get to the same level of efficacy. And then you find that like there it it doesn't ever quite make it into mainstream adoption.
0: What do you think about scaling a company or starting a company in Europe versus, you know, the US or North America for that matter? But like when you're an investor what are maybe some of the differences? It could be the types of founders that you meet, it could be how you actually go about, you know, scaling the business, but like what are maybe some of the differences just in your mind?
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So I think the I mean one of the the challenges but also you know one of the exciting things about Europe is is it's it's such a it's you know, not at all a monolithic call it's, it's so different yeah I know to, it's so it's so it's so diverse of, right which, which is right. you know which is often a challenge because you know sometimes it's easier for British companies just expand into the US or even to Canada or Australia despite the distance just because culturally and language wise it is a little bit so, bit more similar rather than going to France which is literally you know a two-hour drive or train ride away it's geographically you know so so much so much closer but yet it's it just very different in terms of yeah consumer habits language culture all of that in Europe what we find is uh, I think Europe has uh, the landscape has changed a lot over the last you know 10 20 years I think you know there was in 20 years ago you know you really there were many I mean there were, there were much fewer um, venture firms I think the startups at the time were were probably I mean the, the venture landscape in Europe grew more out of like the traditional private equity type of industry so a lot of the funds were much more conservative they were much more sort of financial investors and what operated, you know, less founder friendly. I think, you know, over the last, you know, 10, 20 years, as there have been a number of like really large, you know, and exciting companies come out of Europe, whether it's, you know, from Spotify and then Klarna and Farfetch on the consumer side. You also have like, you know, large companies like ADN, which is doing a, a global checkouts business um, from Amsterdam. You know, I think there's been that always fuels the ecosystem, right? You, you have a couple of, of large sort of marquee exits. Um, investors get really excited, but also. you just have a great base of like the early employees who become either talented founders or angel investors and cycle, recycle back into the, the ecosystem. So I think, you know, compared to, to probably, you know, 10, 10 years ago or even like five, six years ago when I first, you know, entered the, the scene here in, in London, I think it's, it's the founders are much more, have gotten more ambitious in Europe. And I think also with COVID, especially, the great thing about Europe is, is because everything is so close, you can hire great, you can have a distributed team and you can have, hire great talent. I mean, there are some great engineers in, you know, places like Poland and Hungary And so you don't need to constrain yourself. And as a result, the the cost of getting started is often much, much lower than the U.S., especially if you're based on the West Coast or New
0: York. Those are all fascinating, really interesting points. I've had on a couple London investors, and they were saying too how typically British companies might look you know outside of Europe first when it comes to expansion whether it's the west but even like even also like the east as well too um, and looking like at different parts of Asia that's really interesting
1: yeah and I, that's actually a good point because I do think because of that they all of the companies here in Europe designed their product day one to be more global in mind whereas I think American companies sometimes suffer a bit from the opposite which is you know the first five ten years you're really us focused because the market there is huge and then when you do want to expand outside actually there's it's much harder than you think.
0: Do you find that consumers in specific European markets favor companies that were started within their country? I would love to kind of hear your take on this.
1: I don't want a stereotype. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. I think it, it, some countries probably do. I mean, the French market is, is notoriously difficult to crack, especially for outsiders. We've had, you know, German companies try to enter. We've had, like, it, British companies, American companies. It It is a very sort of homegrown market, and there's a lot of pride in that. I think the UK market is, is much more open. So, you know, there's, I think, you, it, especially London, it's, it's very diverse and multicultural. But I think also just because, you know, there is a lot of, like... American media and influence but also uh, so you know other European media and influence and so I think it it here it's a very sort of open-minded consumer base.
0: I know you you pay a lot of attention to what's happening in China. Any inspiration at all to what's happening in China or is it you know so different that it's actually really hard to to kind of think about that?
1: It's such an interesting question. It's also fairly close to my heart because I still have family, you know, extended family there yeah. and it, the, the the sad thing is I, I think with combination of both covid and what's been happening politically that within china domestically and also sort of i guess geopolitically globally it does feel like paths have diverged even more and there you know, they've made a number of, of government level you know senior government level changes especially towards the tech ecosystem which has made it even harder i would say for chinese tech to collaborate with western Companies to enter into China, they're still obviously happening. You know, there's you know TikTok being one. one you know, TikTok is still owned owned by ByteDance, which is headquartered in, in Beijing. So obviously, there's there's a lot of like exceptions to that. But I think there is. It does feel like the, the things are deviating more, um, and it, it, I think it is really hard to predict. I think for a long time, I expected sort of live commerce to come. In a bigger way, into both the U.S. And, and and Western Europe, just because in China it became like live streaming, live commerce, even from ten probably well, maybe not 20, 10 years ago, but at least like six seven years ago has been huge on on Tmall and and all the other channels, Pinduoduo and others. I've seen quite a lot of startups try to you know replicate or you know take uh, learnings from that and try to have a similar platform here, and it's never really yeah, it's never really really taken off, and I. I don't know if that's just because they haven't quite found the right, you know, the product just hasn't isn't quite there yet. And you know, no one's found the magical product that will make it sort of just explode, or if it's just like social behavior is just is just a bit different.
0: It seems like one of the areas on the e-commerce side of things that and I'd love your perspective. Tell me if I'm I'm totally wrong here, but that we've you know been lagging in is really that like UI um experience when it comes to e-commerce Alibaba Taobao they were the ones that you know put live streaming center stage and of course then you know adoption probably you know happened quite quickly because and we haven't seen that from on you know Amazon you know it's not it's not really a pleasant experience right
1: that is totally right. That is totally right.
0: And even Shopify, shopping on Shopify is not really a pleasant experience. It's not like Pindodo, which seems I've never experienced Pindodo, uh, <laughs> but I've I've watched a bunch of kind of like YouTube videos and kind of and kind of stuff and just to see like how it kind of works to, to educate myself. Unfortunately, I never tried it, but like it seems like a much more fun way to you know experience shopping and actually to shop, not just you know not just to buy.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about. I think it, it is really sort of the incumbents. Partly is probably because incumbents haven't really innovated. So you're, you're you're spot on that. You know, Alibaba and and, and Taobao from the early days, sort of they they've been. I mean, if you look at the sort of the way that their homepage that or, or just their user experience has has innovated across the years, you know, both on web uh, desktop and on mobile, it, it's been dramatic. Whereas if you look at the Amazon homepage and the product pages, like it literally it feels like it hasn't really changed at all in the last twenty years, and it, it's you know, it's such a static, I mean, it's like the least engaging experience. And yet, you know, all of our, you know, it's like almost 50% of e-commerce spend now is on Amazon. So, you know, I don't know if that means people just don't really want or desire a more engaging experience um, or if it's just because it's you know amazon is so much better on everything else in terms of like you know price and convenience and all of that that we just you know we're, we're sort of just happy to, to take it as it is but i think yeah i think the incumbents being sort of those gatekeepers of that has been a big factor there are also like these these i don't know these other elements where like in uh china this is a cultural stereotype that I'll say, but like there people really love a good deal. Like social I mean, this is sort of the, the behavior, you know, it really emerged kinda of tried to a leapfrog and went from like this very wet market based commerce context where, you know, people were were in the markets, like, you know, negotiating, discounting, yelling, you know, saying, Hey, if I buy more, can you give me um this price to sort of like not skipping supermarkets, but like going from that almost to, to to e commerce in many cases. And so a lot of those social elements really, really resonated. And you know, I have aunts, um and my grandma actually who's passed away, but she never, you know, She's never used a laptop or a computer in there in her life, um, and she's never really you know she she doesn't think about technology. She, but she she would be on those type of channels because she just you know she wanted to bid and like find a good deal.:
0: I know we've touched on COVID. Um, what were some of your learnings throughout these past you know two years um, during this COVID period?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the, and I think, you know, one of, Mike, you sort of mentioned this earlier, but you know, thinking about so, what are the opportunities that we, we see in, in consumer more broadly. And I think we we just see, you know, there's been such a massive transformation in terms of the way that people's lifestyles have changed just dramatically over the last 50 years. I mean, I'll just give one small example. But, you know, 50 years ago, 70% of people who were aged between 25 and 35 years old in the US and Western Europe, they 70% of them were living with a spouse and child. And now in 2021, it's less than 30%. So like that style of living has like completely shifted. Uh, and now it's like most, you know, there's like ha- like it's a quarter of people who live with roommates. There's like another quarter of people who are living with a partner or a SO, but with without children. There's some part of that who's still living with their fam- the parents as well. And so, you know, that's just one small example. But like, you know, that will also have huge transformations in like, you know, how the percentage of freelance population, like how many people are working freelance. And so I think that we see. And then, you know, you layer on top of that, like changes in the way that people self-identify you know you think about the you know the percentage of uh, Gen Z for example who identify as like LGBTq or non-binary we think like that's you know all of those like, changes like you compare that to then the existing infrastructure most consumers use both in terms of like you know what we what we eat what we buy our education, our housing, our healthcare, our childcare, like none of that is really caught on. So we see like that huge disconnect being a, a huge opportunity, but also then COVID has just accelerated so many of those trends. Um, and it's made, you know, people, you know, even more, in some cases, even more isolated. It's 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 um, certainly, you know, made healthcare, well, it's put an even bigger strain on healthcare. And so we think a lot of those trends have sort of been, you know, probably leapfrogged three to five years with COVID and now are, you know, now they're not gonna grow at such a crazy rate, but like they're gonna sort of stay where they are or continue to grow.
0: Is that hard as an investor since, you know, you you do invest in a, in a bunch of technology companies and you maybe see this massive, you know, gains in penetration or or gains in the past two years. And you have to almost say to yourself, okay, this is great, but let's like pump the brakes because this is also during like the COVID period.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely you know there there are some some companies that like wrote you know there's like I remember there was like this huge you know I mean I don't want to like name these, but you know there are like a lot of platforms like Clubhouse for example or like you know there were like a lot of virtual event platforms that were really really big and really popular and during COVID and have definitely sort of lost some of that momentum or or um, engagement afterwards um as people have you know g- gone back out into the real world a bit more but i think you know a lot of the ones the trends that we see in terms of like you know increasing digitization of the people that the way that people like for example when i want to receive their 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 health care or um in, in the way that you know that going back to sort of the more obvious e-commerce examples like that hasn't that that trend hasn't reversed per se it's just to a point you know in some cases it might have slowed down and I think that's where we need to be thoughtful about okay what is the what is the shorter term trend in opportunities and versus the longer term and how do we plan and especially if it's for a portfolio company how can we help them think about the right way to plan for the next you know two years to you know grow and in, in, in capital efficient ways versus you know investing for longer term opportunities
0: Got it what are your thoughts in terms of the fundraising? Climate today. It seems like you're in a pretty good position since you're just raised six hundred million. But can to hear your thoughts?
1: Yeah, no, we are. We feel very lucky to be in this position. So we're we're definitely open for business uh, for any founders that want to chat. We think it's obviously. I think it is tough for founders, but we genuinely do believe that like a lot of great companies have come out of previous downturns. It, it does mean that the, you know, for certain growth stage companies, particularly ones that have like raised that frothy valuations in the past, that like the next. 12 to 24 months is going to be a period of readjustment and getting back to fundamentals. But we actually think for for earlier stage companies, it's it's a really good environment because, you know, suddenly there's not as much competition for, for talent, you know, some things things aren't quite as expensive. And I think, you know, people are also, you know, more measured in terms of the expectations. You know, you want to see growth, but you also want to see, you know, certain unit economics, for example. So I think it's going a bit more back to business fundamentals. I think for for us as a firm actually, we are kind of excited that the slower pace means we get to know founders more. So we, we actually found it really hard sometimes in the last, you know, 18 months where you know, you'd sort of meet a great founder and they'd be like, okay, we want a term sheet in two days, or like, you know, you need to make a decision like now because it's such a long term relationship. I mean, I often joke, half joke to my founders, it's easier to get divorced than to get an investor off your cap table. It's a mutual long term commitment that you got to actively opt into and you want, want to have some dating before you commit.
0: What's one book that's inspired you personally and one book that's inspired you professionally?
1: Actually it's it's one book that I would say has inspired me both personally and professionally. Um but it's a great book called When Breath Becomes Air. Um it's written by Paul Callanity. It's a great book. I mean, for me, it was just, I feel like it was so elegantly and graciously written, especially given to so the author, you know, he was battling stage four lung cancer while he was also expecting his first baby and being like a resident neurosurgeon. But I think it was just, you know, the, the sort of, I read it was while well, I was actually pregnant. <laughs> and I just feel like it brought like such a clarity in terms of like finding your purpose in life and prioritizing on the things that matter. So yeah, I really like that.
0: My final question to you is, what is the best piece of advice that you've received?
1: Yes. Um, so this one I'm going to have to credit. So I, I went to um, Stanford for business school um, at GSB, and there's a class there that's sort of loved, a bit of a must have, must take class, which is called Touchy Feely. I think the proper, the actual name of it is Interpersonal Dynamics, but everyone calls it Touchy Feely. It's a little bit like group therapy, but one of the biggest sort of I think things that I grew, that I took from that class is, is really that this sense that like vulnerability actually isn't a weakness and that it's actually, it can be a real strength in, in sort of fostering authentic relationships. Um, and that class was a lot about like being able to feel comfortable enough in yourself to bring your authentic self to the outside world as well. And I, and I think that's, yeah, that's been really powerful for me, especially in, in the workplace I used to, when I was much younger. I sometimes felt like I had a work persona and a personal life persona and I think bringing those together has been it's been really great.
0: <laughs> I love that. I love that. Also just kind of making yourself more vulnerable, right? And yeah. be, and not being, you know, afraid to kind of share this experience because that actually then deepens the experience. It's yeah. kind of counterintuitive, right?
1: Exactly. In
0: terms of it. Yeah, not being afraid to kind of get vulnerable. Yeah, I love that. Susan, thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun. Thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Mike. What a pleasure.
0: And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Susan on the show. I hope you all enjoyed listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcast. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at mikegelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.